organization started, as the story goes, started in 2001 with $50 in the bank and just a couple of volunteers. And now we sit, you know, 19 years later, one of the largest landholders in Tasmania. We have a balance sheet of over $42 million. We have 22 staff and we've helped protect over 65,000 hectares of land in Tasmania, just out of the sheer commitment and drive and dedication of people. Hello. My name is Barney, and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today, I am speaking to James Hattam. James is a conservation ecologist and has plied his trade for over 10 years in both Victoria and Tasmania. James is Chief Executive Officer at the Tasmanian Land Conservancy and has been in the role since June 2018. James is also on the board for Island Magazine. I was thrilled to get the chance to have such a lengthy, open and honest discussion with James about his life, career and what makes him tick. We spoke about growing up in Fiji, the importance of good teachers, his passions, his values, democracy and politics, the divorce between the built and natural worlds, following your instincts and learning from experience. I was truly inspired by James's optimism, pragmatism and the way he simply gets on with the job no matter how large the challenge is. I know I learnt a lot about leadership, choosing my attitude and the importance of empathy. I have no doubt you will be as enthralled as I was during this conversation, so without further delay, I bring you James. James, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. How are you going with the coronavirus? Yeah, I think I'm going okay. I'm, um, I'm pretty happy that I live in a pretty beautiful place, which is, is Hobart, and uh, I look out of my window and I get to see the rolling hills and, and the Derwent River and Mount Wellington. So I'm pretty lucky, I think, to be stuck in this place for a while. So, yeah, getting pretty connected to with people using technology, which I, I do quite a lot already, uh, living remotely from my family and, and friends on the mainland. But, um, yeah, not doing too bad. Fantastic. I can vouch, vouch for that view. It's, a, it's an amazing spot. I'd like to start with a little bit of an introduction of yourself and what you do. Sure. My name's James Scott Hatton, um, born and, and bred in Victoria, um, born in, in Bendigo, central Victoria, and had most of my adolescence in, in Victoria. Um, I was lucky enough to spend three years of my childhood growing up in Fiji with my family. But, yeah, uh, became a, a conservation ecologist, love nature, love being out in nature and yeah, committed my life to or my professional and also my personal life to, to working in nature conservation. Yeah, that's, that's about me. Unreal. Let's get started with Fiji. What, what brought you there? What brought your family over to Fiji? Yeah, great question. And it's funny when people ask me to introduce myself, I, I never miss that bit. So uh, my dad, uh, uh, Rick, he, he's a civil engineer and he moved the family over to Fiji in around 1990, so I was about five years old, um, and we lived over there for three years. He, he moved over there to do a project, um, helping the local authorities there build some roads on uh, not the big island, um, but the smaller island in Fiji. So, yeah, he uprooted me and my two brothers and mum, and, and we moved over to Fiji, which was pretty remarkable, pretty amazing. You know, I think, think to it now as an adult and 
think my parents were pretty brave to do that. All three boys, we had very different experiences. But for me, you know, I was from the age of five till about eight. So very formative years. I was just out every single day. As soon as the sun was up, I was out and I wasn't back till it was dark. Um, I contracted every type of tropical disease I think you could get. Um, my poor mother uh, had to take me to hospital on many, many occasions. But yeah, I just loved it. Yeah, yeah, loved it. Very, you know, pretty, it was the biggest town on, on the island, but it was a pretty small town at that. Only a handful of sort of Western or white families there and really immersed yourself in the local community. So, yeah, that, that's what Dad took us over there. And we'd come back every Christmas and, and be in Melbourne to see the family, um, but then we'd always head back over over to Fiji, which was quite surreal. We'd go over on a big aeroplane and then catch a small aeroplane from Suva over to Lombasa where we lived and, you know, we'd be jammed in there. There'd be chickens in there. You know, you could see straight into the cockpit. It was a pretty cool, cool way to... To, to just spend a few years as a kid. That was a brave move. Would you say that your parents are brave in in general or was that sort of a surprise? Uh, it's, it's funny. Well, you probably know, Matt. You do know my parents and um, thinking, you know, my, my parents aren't, I wouldn't say they were adventurous people, but they're, they're, you know, they're brave, obviously, to take three young children. You know, I was five and my brothers were, were what's that, about, eight or nine and about 12 that, that we were all over there together. So that was a pretty brave move to take us all over there into a bit of the unknown. So, yeah, I think, you know, Dad's very committed to his work. He's very good at what he does and really loves leading, you know, leading big projects and, and getting good outcomes. So I think for him it was a great professional thing. And from Mum's perspective, she's a really community-minded person. So she embraced the local community and did incredible things over there actually as a community member and you know I was you know really proud to grow up there and and proud of my parents and and the work that they did in the local community and yeah but no I I look back at it now and you know as a I'm about to turn 35 and I think geez that was pretty bloody brave (laughs) to do that it wasn't the Fiji that you sort of think of as you know white sandy beaches it was we, we used to you know one of the key things that sticks in my mind which got me connected or aware of the the natural environment around me was it was a sugarcane town and every day we'd drive over the river where the sugarcane mill was and the river would be a different colour. And I'm not talking just small colours, I'm talking fluorescent green, fluorescent blue, purple, um, reds, you know, but there was some, some bad stuff happening there from an industrial perspective and it was a very much a developing country. And you know, as I said, I got every I got every type of tropical disease from swimming in monsoonal rivers and all sorts of stuff. But um, yeah, yeah, it was it wasn't your typical white sandy beaches and palm trees, that's for sure. Yeah, but do you think that that trip over, or not that trip, those three years that you spent over there helped you form into the person you are today? Did it? Let's backtrack a little bit. How did it affect your upbringing at all, your schooling when you got back? What was the the legacy of Fiji once you hit Geelong? Yeah, I guess yeah, from remote Fiji to the to the thriving thriving Acropolis that is Geelong. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a culture shock, that's for sure. To go to the first point of your question, you know, Fiji definitely defined me. Fiji made me the person I am. Yeah, you know, I was very lucky to be young. I think it was a very different experience for both my brothers. But for me, you know, you don't really 
care about friends or connections that much when you're that young anyone's your friend you know so I'd just go and find local kids and we'd climb trees we'd big build swing ropes into rivers you know we'd burn things we'd light firecrackers off you know all those things that kids get up to that just got me out into the natural world definitely built my awareness of the natural world and the things around me and connected me to nature 100% that experience did that for me but you know, from a schooling perspective, school was nothing. So I think I was in grade one or grade two when I was there. And I, I'd actually have very little recollection of school. The one thing I do recall of school was I remember once a week you got to go on incinerator duty um, where you went around and you collected all the rubbish in the rubbish bins <laughs> from the school and you got to go down to the creek and burn it all. Oh, wow. You know, and I was in grade <laughs> in grade one and that's like that was like a chore for a primary school student. So... You know, <laughs> was it the job everyone wanted, or the the one that the the short straw? No, it was the job everyone wanted. Every every kid wants to go down and just you know. <laughs> I, I use the word incinerator generally. It was just literally a pile of burning stuff on the side of the creek. But you know, even that in itself taught me about waste and taught me about you know where does your litter go and creeks and the value of all those things in in the world that we live. But yeah, definitely coming back. Um, you know, I remember going into grade three. Um, in Geelong and uh, yeah vividly I can still remember my first day you know I had no idea I I was probably more like a grade one to be honest I could barely read and nothing against my parents you know mum and dad did a huge amount of work for me while I was there but you know that was the school that we were there you know that was my formative schooling so you know I struggled big time and because I was an outside person I didn't want to be in school I didn't want to be in the classroom so yeah, coming back into into school at grade three in Geelong was really, really challenging for me. And I remember even the teachers talking to me. I, I think I, I've got quite, um, I've got Italian heritage, so I've got quite olive skin, and I think living in Fiji made me have quite dark skin. So I think quite a few of the, the teachers thought I was actually Fijian <laughs> and, and would speak to me, you know, that really slow way that I was, wasn't actually speaking English, but... Yeah, it was it was a huge challenge academically coming back, you know. I had to wear a tie, whereas in Fiji I wore sandals and a T-shirt at school. So, yeah, that was a big, big change. Over in Fiji, I guess that formative year, seeing that industrial waste in the river and the, and the burning of the waste by the creek compared to the beauty, the, the beaches, the forests, the, the amazing beauty that you would have seen as well. And you said that how that started to form you into the person that you are today, which is an environmentalist, a a person that tries to conserve the beauty of this planet. Do you think that you would have got into the job and the the field that you're in today, which we'll go into, but the field that you're in today without that experience? Yeah, great question. I, I often think quite a lot about this because me and my brothers are very different. Both my brothers, one's one's a surgeon, one's a medical professional that you know they're they're great people and they they care deeply about the the world that we live in the environment but yeah they're not they're not you know we're, we're quite different in our pursuits and our interests as well so you know I that whole nature versus nurture sort of idea definitely the formative years in Fiji for me opened my eyes to things because I was out there I was feeling them I was touching them you know I was getting sick by swimming in those rivers all those things I was feeling all, all of that and being very connected to the natural world whereas you know, I don't think they necessarily, they had a lot of that, but not 
immerse themselves in it. You know, I think as a young kid, as a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, you just throw yourself into it. But, yeah, I think, yeah, for me, I think that those years in Fiji definitely built my appreciation of the natural world. And as you said, I got to experience really beautiful things there. We spent a lot of, we had these great friends, Joe and, and Roz, who Roz was a, was a New Zealand woman and Joe was a, a Fiji man and they were married and they lived out in a village and we'd go and visit them and it was the best thing for me. It was my most favourite thing to go and do, to go and stay with them. It was a village-style environment, you know. They lived in a traditional house. They had, you know, bananas, trees, or like it was, you know, they would plough their fields with bullocks and all this sort of stuff. And for me, that was just, you know, I was out there in it. You know, I, I loved that, you know, swinging from trees, a bit Tarzan-like. But then, yeah, as you said, I'd then come back to the city and I'd see come back to the town and I'd see this waste and I'd see these different coloured rivers and I'd be like, how do I, you know, as a young kid, how do you put those two things together, the world in which we live that we love so much and we get so much joy from, but also, you know, industrialisation, sugarcane, you know, it was the backbone of the economy in that community. If it wasn't there, none of those people would have jobs, there would be more poverty, all those things. So, yeah, from an early age, definitely heightened my awareness to, to the importance of nature and, and natural systems. How did you connect with nature once you returned home? Did you have a chance to, you know, during your primary school and secondary school years? Yeah, definitely. So, so you know, Dad, Dad would take us on camping trips. You know, we'd get out there all the time. You know, we weren't a typical bushwalking environmental family. We wouldn't go on big, long bushwalks and look for orchids and things like that. But, yeah, we'd definitely go out there and we'd go exploring and, and Dad would take us around the countryside in his cars and, you know, he'd be more looking at the bridges and the roads and we'd be more I'd be more interested in the trees and the wetlands and the rivers. <laughs> but yeah, we 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 traveled around a lot as a family. But through school for me, you know, I struggled with school, primary school, sort of secondary, middle school, struggled big time. But in year nine, uh, the, the school that I went to had this great program where you went and spent 10 weeks, 12 weeks, a whole term living on a dairy farm. You know, it was a bit of like your, your poor man's timber top. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I went to a great school in Geelong and it, and it had these great opportunities for kids. So that got me out again and that really connected me too to living in a place, living, it, it was near Creswick, uh, near Ballarat, and we, we would, you know, have to get up and milk the cows in the mornings. We'd have to do farm work. We'd do two, two hours of school work and then you'd be out on the farm you know, working with the farm managers, working with contractors, all sorts of stuff. And I love that. You know, that was at that age of about 16, thinking about, you know, what does my life look like? What do I want to do? I was a very practical person, very hands-on, you know, loved getting my hands dirty, building things. So I was took a real interest in sort of horticultural landscaping through that process. So from there, again, I was really not very academic at all, hated typical maths and sciences, wanted to just get out there and get my hands dirty and and did a a vet course, vocational educational training course through the school, which was, again, great in horticulture, got me really interested in plants and understanding plants and how they work and did some work in in that space sort of part-time as a teenager and and enjoyed that to an extent, but um, there was sort of something missing in it. And for me, getting to sort of my last two years of school, I I connected really well with a great outdoor ed teacher and a great outdoor ed program. And I got to get out there again into wild places 
and as you know, Geelong's not an overly wild place. It's pretty, it's close to some incredible places, so the Great Ocean Road and the Otways and the like, but you've sort of got to go looking for them. Yeah. Um, and this, this outdoor ed program got me out there and, you know, got me seeing things. And, again, that same, the same lessons that I learned as a kid in Fiji, seeing things and seeing wild places and seeing destructions of logging or dams or, or activities that I didn't see that respected the natural world, I had all those emotions again and I had all those excitements and I was applying my learnings through horticulture. So, yeah, I took a real strong interest in environmental issues and protections of protection of places and conservation and but also biology biology so i loved plants and i loved learning about plants and why the landscape looks the way that it looks today and all the different natural systems that have created that that definitely was my journey through sort of you know staying very connected to the natural world and and, and through my through my academic life as a, as a as a student yeah and, and funny that you mentioned not being overly fond of school and then you go out there and all of a sudden you're in love with biology uh you know a science that is extremely difficult to to jump straight into it at, at a university level or and things like that did you what did you do after school so once you finish year 12 yeah so after year 12 i um i went to university and studied environmental science but to go back to the point around biology, you know, and to go again to the point of, of my high school teacher, and I had three high school teachers that from year 11, from year 10 to year 11, year 10, I was a DC student, and year 11 and 12, I went to an A-plus student. I actually raised the eyebrows of quite a few people, and I think a lot of teachers thought I was cheating because um, I literally went from a D to an A student almost overnight, and, you know, I have three teachers to thank for that. Uh, one was an English teacher, one was a, a biology teacher and one was the outdoor ed teacher. And, and they actually, they didn't teach me things. They taught me how to learn. Mm. Uh, and they, they taught me the art of observation. They taught me the craft of words, the craft of storytelling, the importance of words, but also the importance of critical thinking and analysing issues instead of just telling me content or information. So I think throughout my, my middle school career, I was just trying to jam content in my head and I couldn't remember it. But by getting out there into the natural environment and applying things like biological processes or why plants are the way they are, what's going on, geology, geomorphology, all these sort of elements that you can see, you know, when you look at a mountain and you look at a river and you look at a tree, I could apply them really quickly. And so, yeah, that's where I had this brain, you know, I call it a light bulb moment where I went from, oh, wow, I can actually learn now. I'm, I'm learning how I learn. Uh, yeah, I, I did, you know, not too bad at the end of year 12 and got into environmental science and, yeah, moved to Melbourne. So I moved, moved out of Geelong and moved to Melbourne to, to study environmental science. And, you know, that was a big thing too, you know, moving out of home and living with a couple of great mates and, yeah, going into the world of biology pracs and botany and the like that way. So, yeah, I did a major in conservation ecology and plant biology. So, yeah, and loved it. Yeah, just thrived on it. I just wanted to absorb as much as I could at university and and just, yeah, couldn't get enough out of it really, to be honest. Amazing. As an educator, it's inspiring to hear that, the influence that educators had on you. And at times, as a teacher, you sometimes fail to realise the impact you can have on people. 
have you gone back to those teachers and let them know that they did inspire you and haven't and that they had an effect on you yeah definitely I'm, I'm really conscious of that and um you know to, to the outdoor ed teacher john you know he was my teacher he then became my boss because when i was at at university i worked at the outdoor ed in the outdoor ed program as a guide um so he was my boss and then he was my mentor and now he's just you know one of my best mates and yeah, yeah, still very, very much connected to him. Um, and as a lot of, you know, students that I know have gone through that same program and that same school, you know, he, he had a huge influence of a lot, of, over a lot of people but also still very connected to my biology teacher. Um, the English teacher, not so much, you know. I, I struggled reading and writing, to be honest, and, you know, I remember being made fun of um, by still some very good friends of mine about, you know, trying to read Shakespeare out aloud <laughs> and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, I, I often tell, yeah, yeah, Jan and John, especially who are my biology and ed teachers very much about the impact they had on me and, um, you know, how grateful I am for, for what they, they taught me. So also uh, my mum, so to step back a bit, when I was in year 10 and I was a D student and I was hating it and I wanted to just be a, a landscape gardener, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Just let me quit school. I'll just go and get my trade and, you know, that, that'll be me. I'm, I'm happy in that. I hate school. And mum and dad both sort of said that they put me through a good school and, you know, sacrificed a lot to do that. And I never forget this moment with mum. Mum said, you know, we'll back you to do whatever you want in life but you need to do one thing for us and that's to finish year 12 and then you can do whatever you want. Just don't don't leave school right now and, you know, I definitely wouldn't be where I am today if, if I just reacted in year 10 when I was a D student and everything I did, you know, I couldn't learn things and I just, every exam, no matter how hard I try, I just struggle with. So, yeah, you know, mum and dad, uh, I owe a lot to them uh, for the opportunity they've given me but those teachers most definitely guided me along the path of learning and you know incredibly grateful for that yeah your mum is that nurturing soul in in so many ways and we obviously know each other my partner is your cousin that's that's the connection and yeah meeting a a woman like that that is so nurturing and so giving and so generous and still does that obviously from the days of pre-fiji into fiji and now with rotary and and working at the hospital and doing a lot of the charity work that she does as well. And then your dad as well, being so into his work, but so intellectual, so switched on, you would have had both of the nurturing side as well as the, the intellectual side coming at you to, to succeed. And I guess with the three careers and, and lives that you and your brothers have forged, you know, it's, it's thanks to your parents, no doubt. So a shout out to them. Just with going back to education and the journeys we've all taken. I hated learning. I loved it up until about year eight and then teenage years came in and I went to a pretty crappy school in many ways. Lots of great friends and lots of great teachers, but it wasn't the most nurturing for learning and for being yourself. You really had to conform in this sort of inner city boys school that taught you to fight pretty quickly and things like that. To to getting through that and, and really hating it. And, and a couple of teachers really inspired me to then become a teacher later on as well. So that that's super important. But I remember going and just doing an arts degree and, and scraping in and doing whatever. And it wasn't until you get that real sense of, I loved history, for example. I really loved it. 
but I wasn't doing too well in it because it was really like a formula that you had to just write in a certain way. It didn't really matter about the story. It only mattered about, uh, I guess, the references that you put in. Who were you reading and how were you telling their story? And it wasn't until I was taken, you know, a lecturer took me under his wing and said, you know, you know your stuff in class, in shoots and things like that. But when you write, you, you try to write like someone else. And it wasn't until he said, you know, this is your story to tell. Have your opinion and your story with the backing of some of these experts. It's not their story. It's yours still. And it wasn't from that moment until I really said, oh, I actually love writing and I'm, I love writing today. But it, it took someone to spark that. And it's amazing that you had a, a similar story a little bit earlier, but that took you on your journey and, and the place that you wanted to go. And I just hope that as a teacher, I'm able to bring that across. Yeah, but it, it is so tough with so much around about ticking the boxes. It takes little things that, like it's going to Fiji, for example. If you took that in isolation and someone said diseases, playing in dirty water, didn't get an education, all of this stuff, you go, all right, I'm not going to be going, sending my child to Fiji. But the fact is that you're where you are with the experiences you have and, and the, the learning that you've had because of that. And I think we're very, very careful, especially in Australia, to stop people experiencing the real world, which actually lets us down when we're adults. And it's not until that you actually do travel. Australians love to travel. And sometimes it's a, just the backpackers trip, you know, say, or Croatia, you do that. But those trips that you take as well as an education overseas, but even into nature that really guides us. So you've had your upbringing in Fiji, your formative years, you had your teachers, your educators that brought you along, your love of nature was harnessed, you did your degree and you did well. Did you fill up the time in your early 20s, late teens with some travel at all? Yeah, yeah, I did. So I finished my undergraduate. I did um, an, an honours year, which was awesome. I spent the year studying moss, of all things. So, yep, the little green stuff that you yeah. no one really thinks about. So, What's the difference um, between spent... moss and lichen? Is there a difference between the two? Oh, mate, such a difference. Um, <laughs> mate, mosses are the building stones of all plants that we have to, to see today in this world. Uh, lichens are actually composite organisms. So lichens are actually a, a mix of two different organisms, one being an algae and one being a fungus. So the fruiting body that you see of, of a lichen is actually the fungus element of that composite organism. So it's actually not one thing. So, you know, there's your mind blown from a well, <laughs> it is biology mind, lesson. Absolutely. Well, I learned uh, about lichen and moss and the, the fact that they're two different things because of roof seal and the roof seal ads. So there you go. You've blown my mind with a bit of an education other than the roof seal. <laughs> anyway, oh, go on. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, so I did. I did travel. So I finished university um, and I went, well, luckily I actually got a job. So I finished my honours year and I got a job uh, with Parks Victoria as a, a seasonal ranger. So, you know, I had this opportunity when I finished my honours to continue doing postgraduate study. So I got offered a PhD at, or I got to go and do a job, which was a th only a three-month job. And, you know, I thanked myself at that point too, nothing against doing a PhD. I think that's great. But for me, doing that three-month work 
practical work again getting out of melbourne i, I was living in apollo bay working in the great otway national park you know one of Australia's most iconic national parks on the Great Ocean Road. You know, I was building tracks, I was using a chainsaw, I was digging stuff, I was just in my element again, you know, go all the way back to Fiji, all those key little components that are common throughout the thread. But it was only a three-month contract. So that worked perfectly for my plan. So I did three months and then I went overseas and I travelled. So I went to Southeast Asia, went to Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos um, and Nepal. I did some volunteering work in, in Laos, Laos, which I just loved, um, in a little village that had set up an ecotourism project where they were taking people on guided tours of looking for elephants. So they changed their whole model. They used to uh, conflict with nature and they were trying to get the elephants out of their villages. They were, kill, they were ruining their crops and killing their, their villages as well. And so, you know, they shifted instead of this conflict with nature, they said, let's go down the ecotourism path. And I got to go and spend uh, a number of weeks living in this remote village teaching English to tour guides and rangers, which was really awesome. Um, and for those of you that know me, again, going back to my English days, not a very good reader, not a very good writer, so not the best person to be teaching English, <laughs> I don't think. And most of our English lessons in, in, involve quite a lot of lao lao. If anyone knows what lao lao is, it's the, the rice whiskey or rice wine that they make okay, that is just yeah. potent. <laughs> um, and they're very shy people, the, the lao people, and um, so we'd spend most of the night just laughing, joking, kicking the soccer ball, drinking quite a lot of this and then we'd have our English lesson at which time I was incredibly drunk and so you know we'd do our best but that was you know awesome another really awesome experience and to see connect to a different culture very much you know brought me back to Fiji and getting out into into these remote places and developing countries and just loved that and then going to Nepal I spent three months in Nepal I've been back again since um, but Nepal blew me away uh the mountains in nepal were like nothing i've ever experienced in my life i spent weeks after week after week after week walking just loved it um loved Kathmandu. loved the the fusion of cultures the collision of cultures you know with india and tibet and china just all mashed together in that concentration of the himalayas you know it just blew my mind as a, as a young person so you know that coming back Again, and then I went back into another seasonal contract in, in the Otways was such a culture shock, you know, going from Kathmandu back to the Great Ocean Road. But, you know, incredible lessons. And I think you mentioned before around experiences and I think you can't teach someone values. You know, values are, are something that, you're, that you develop through your life and are based on your experiences. And I think, you know, I valued huge amounts of culture, of landscape, of, of, of nature and the importance of, of a really strong connection to nature through those experiences. So, yeah, the travel for me was, was awesome. You know, I had some hairy moments as a young fella, uh, pretty naive, got robbed in, in Cambodia you know, walk through a blizzard in, in the Himalayas and, um, you know, chest deep snow, worked across some crevasses, don't tell my mum, all sorts of dodgy things, sitting on the back of motorbikes and jeeps with, you know, sheer drops to death. Uh, but, yeah, uh, awesome experiences as, as a young person. Yeah, real living. That's mm. what it's all about. Nepal, yeah, I've, I've been to Nepal and it's one of the most incredible places in the world. But the mountains, the Himalayas, incredible. I mean, we, we have hills, really, in Australia compared to, to those monstrosities. And everywhere you turned, it was just 
another one, another magical site. So I can imagine that being inspiring and, and the fact that, you know, two sort of founding religions of the East, Hinduism and, and Buddhism, you know, coming out of areas near the Himalayas, it says a lot about what it does to the human psyche and, and mind and, and soul in a way. You talked about values. You talked about the values that you hold. Did your values change at all or did you realise that you needed to perhaps live in a certain way once you did this travel? Did you want to change the way you were living or, or do something? Did it inspire you to do more? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I look back at it now, you know, I look back at it really differently now to when I was, you know, 23. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at 23 I didn't really think too deeply about it. I just lived it. Um, and, you know, and I think I look back at it now and I, I sort of have some cringe moments, you know, even the whole, you know, going to Asia to teach English. It's like, you know, I taught those people nothing. You know, that was just, you know, and we have that from a conservation perspective too. You know, we think we can go to these places and teach people how to protect our nature and, you know, that is so fundamentally flawed. So I think for me, you know, the thing that I took out of it that I've learned and, and, I, and I learned it pretty quickly after going to it was a lot of our, our time in Australia, nature is separate to us. You know, we live in suburban places. We have suburban sprawls. You know, we have parks. Nature is very confined in places, whereas travelling through Asia and Nepal and, and places like that, you realise that actually people are part of nature in those systems. So people are in there. People are everywhere you look. There's people, there's culture, there's nature, no matter where you looked. And I think in, in Australia we have a very divorced relationship from nature and in those places it's it's part of their culture it's part of their way of life it's part of their subsistence and I think I learned a lot from the time that I spent in those places in Nepal but also in, in Laos in that village you know those people taught me way more than anything I could ever teach them you know to see some of the leaders in that community change that whole village and say actually no we're going to stop cutting down the forest to plant crops, to sell, to make some things. We're actually going to protect that community forest and we're going to bring tourists here and we're going to take them on walks to show them the elephants and we're going to reskill and retrain our young people to, to do that because we want this place to be protected, to be part of, you know, future generations. So, you know, I think for me I definitely took the human element out of those experiences and when I came back and then went into a national park, uh, I only lasted another year working in, in that very typical national park. And our national parks are so important and, you know, one of the best assets that we have in Australia, but they're by and large empty, you know. They're full of nature and that's awesome. But, you know, where is the connection between humans and nature? Is there a, uh, a sign telling us that, that go this way, go that way, this is important because of this instead of that very deep connection to the natural world and the, the connection between nature and the way in which we live. Um, and I think that for me, that experience of travel and my working definitely set me on another set set and, and I, I shifted my career and I started looking elsewhere to see for new experiences to broaden that. And by no means am I saying that in a negative against national parks. National parks, as I said, are one of the best assets that we have as a society and they're an incredible thing for future generations and, you know, I'm incredibly grateful for past generations that fought for those national parks. But I think the importance around how people connect to nature is going to really be important for the future. That's blown my mind. That national, it, it made me think 
well, it's, it's sparked a light bulb to say that we are divorced from nature in our cities, but also in our national parks. We are visitors to this strange and foreign place that we are told where to set up camp, the walkway that you can go on, not to step in that part with your shoes and then walk on the path because you could spread some seed that shouldn't be there and which is obviously extremely important. But that ruggedness, that ability to just get lost in nature and know nature enough that you're not going to to die <laughs> or, or need um, helicopter rescue that so many people do and they, they jump off the track. So there is that uh, cultural what, separation, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, one thing that I'm really not proud of too <laughs> is that I have been helicoptered out of the National Park. You know, <laughs> that just showed me, you know, and I was actually working as a guide, you know, so how bad was that? The first guiding trip I ever did as an outdoor ed guide, uh, I was part of a party that got lost in the Great Alpine National Park in Victoria and they got helicoptered out. <laughs> so, um, you know. Can, can you elaborate on that? Just, oh, <laughs> I can. You don't have to <laughs> tell you the whole story. But anyway, it's just it's one of those stories of this great moment of misadventure where a whole series of things occurred through time, decision points at time that chose diff- different decisions. But gee, we would have given those kids a really great adventure and a great story that, you know, I hope they still have to this day, whether they're whatever they're doing in their life, they had a real sense of adventure. And that that sense of being lost, um, you know, I've had it a number of times in my life and you initially have a sense of fear but once the fear dissipates you actually have this it's quite calming and you just go yeah I have no idea where I am I have no idea what that hill is I don't know what's over that hill I don't know what's down in that gully but yeah that's you know that that goes back to that point of being connected to nature and the natural world and and getting out of that comfort zone. You touched on the sense of calm that starts to occur when you lose control and you lose touch with what you were I guess set out to do and the typical A to B goal do you have anything to say on that idea not only in nature but in life too is there times that you've had that you've lost control or you've been in a state where you you don't know what's next and that's had a calming effect rather than an effect of anxiety yeah, great, great question. I think we live very separate lives from the time that we spend, or, you know, I do, and, and I think back to my experiences where I've, I've felt that, you know, on long bushwalks or spending lots of time out in the natural world, weeks on end, you have that ability to get back to that very basic way of living. You know, I would say the sense of the unknown in a typical day, daily life in society that I live now, I don't feel that's calming at all. You know, I feel huge amounts of anxiety and, and stress inducing <laughs> from that as opposed to calmness. You know, no way do I feel calm in the unknown in, in a typical day of, of my world right now or in a typical day uh, compared to, to being out in the, in, in the wilderness or out in a national park and just exploring places and looking at things. And, yeah, it's, it's a very, again, coming back to that point of being divorced from those two things. You know, there's so much stimulus in the world that we live in so much pressure and expectation that we put largely on ourselves that, yeah, I definitely don't get a sense of calm at all or in, in, a, in whatever you call the real world compared to times that I've spent out in the natural world. Real and natural should mean the same thing, but we've made them completely different. It's amazing. <laughs> It is, and I didn't even, didn't even feel like as I was talking through that, I was thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really going down that path of divorcing nature and... and Everyone know, does, yeah. Living, yeah. yeah. I, and it's, it's a 
small experience. You know, you go camping once a year, like, you know, the, the majority of people might go camping once a year or on a, on a bushwalk and really connect and feel that, but that's it. And it's, it is that little jump into the natural world to get back into reality, which is something we've constructed as humans, this concrete glass steel jungle that we've built. But that's Melbourne. Hobart's a little bit different where you are now. How did you get from Melbourne and working on moss <laughs> and then getting lost in the was it in the Otways that you were getting lost? Where where did you actually get helicoptered out of? No, that was up in the yeah, the the highlands in Victoria. So still Victoria. Yeah. So yep. you know, you get yep. from Victoria to end up in Tasmania. What what was the journey there? Yeah, so I, as I shifted from from working in parks, which was awesome and, and very practical, I decided that I needed to explore different things. I needed to do something different, really different. I needed to apply a different part of my learning, different part of my training as an ecologist. So I actually moved to northeast Victoria and I worked uh, on invasive species compliance with farmers, which taught me a lot about myself. So as a 24-year-old, I was going around telling farmers that they had to spray their weeds. If they didn't, I was going to give them a fine. It's fair to say it's probably the worst job I ever had in my life. Um, I learned a lot about myself in that job. I learned about, a lot about what works and what doesn't work and learned a lot about working with people and learned a lot about layers of bureaucracy and government. So I, I only did that for a very short period of time but loved my time up in the northeast made some really good friends up there and then moved back to the surf coast where I grew up and worked for a smaller organisation but worked on community-based conservation projects. So working with the community to do great restoration projects along the coast. So all these places that I got to grow up along, um, I now got to work in and, and, you know, loved that, really enjoyed my work there. And then lucky enough, eight years ago, a, a job came up in Tassie. My partner at the time was living in Tassie. We actually studied at university together. She was a wildlife biologist. I was a botanist. So she was down in Tassie working with Tassie Devils, which was, you know, dream job as a wildlife biologist. And then a job came up with a, a non-government organisation, the Tasmanian Land Conservancy in Tassie as an ecologist. And it's probably the only job in my life that I've wanted more than anything else. Um, I always wanted to not work for government anymore. I wanted to try and see what it looked like outside of government, conservation done a little bit differently. And I got the opportunity, yeah, applied for this job, had a Skype interview, most nervous I've ever been in my life. And then, yeah, got, got the job and, and moved to Tassie, yeah, eight years ago. You mentioned that you needed to shift, you needed that change, you needed something to guide you in a different direction. What was it that was that spark to say that you needed to move away from whatever you were doing initially? over in the Otways and the seasonal park work? I think I just needed to see, you know, I was working in very much protected area management, working in a national park, and I loved that. And it was, you know, if I was quite selfish, it was awesome to be in a beautiful place every day. But I think, you know, going to a previous question, I think my travel then sort of highlighted going, actually, if we really value nature and we want to achieve great things for nature, we have to look beyond the reserve, we have to look beyond the fence what's out there, what's out there in the landscape. And that's what drove me to go and do that other job. It's like, all right, let's see what that landscape's like. Let's see how nature is working in those landscapes and how we can work with people in those landscapes. So it was trying to really go back to that 
element of what else is out there. I, I loved the national park work. I loved working as a ranger. I loved the people I worked with. They taught me so much, so much. But I just had this interest about what was going on beyond on, on private land, you know, what's going on on the other side of that gate. How can we influence that? And did it interest you more to work with people or to make change to the environment or a bit of both? Was it was it wanting to work with people that may not really want to work with you greenies? Is that, is that what it was? Or, you know, obviously being facetious there, but, you know, you were probably the uh, the parking inspector or the the train, you know, the ticket inspector of the northeast with your spray this weed or get fined, I guess. So to, to go up there and work with those people and learn about their needs and wants and did you learn – I mean, you said you learnt a lot about yourself – did you realise that people did want to work with nature a little bit more but they just maybe didn't have the tools to, to do so or was it was it an enemy beyond the national park gates that you were facing? No, not at all. I think for me it was about how does it all work together. I love the park rangers that I worked with. Um, you know, their commitment, their dedication to what they did was phenomenal and I just wanted to get a better understanding of what else was going on in the landscape, what what was influencing that person's decision to cut down those trees or to put a dam in that gully or to protect that area or to plant that crop over there? I wanted to get that knowledge of what was going on beyond the fence lines, so beyond the typical reserves that we think of of nature conservation. So, you know, the human element for me that I learned a lot about myself in that with, with that job of that compliance job, but, yeah, the human's were very much driving me and the job that I moved to Tassie for was working with landholders to encourage them to protect their land uh, and I had the opportunity to go onto properties and to, to, you know, real privilege to go onto people's properties and have a look and tell them a little bit about what is there from an ecological perspective but they taught me way more about the natural environment you know, through the stories that they had and through the observations that they made. None of them were scientists. None of them were trained in, you know, some of them are, but by and large they're not. You know, that learnt knowledge by being in a place and being connected to the natural world, whether that's the birds that come and feed in the garden outside your kitchen window or whether that's understanding why that moss is growing on that rock, not that rock, all part of the jigsaw puzzle that I think as a society we need to embrace and encourage for nature to be really core to to what makes us what we are, which is human beings. I'm starting to read and look into a lot more about the natural world and and how it works and how we interact with it. And I think the big component of that is my knowledge that we are heading down a path that is, in my view, pretty dire. There's two, I guess it's twofold. The first one is climate change and the damage that's going to do and then just general pollution and loss of nature. And those two areas scare me. But not only they scare me, they really hurt me. They they have caused me to grieve a fair bit recently over what we're losing and what we could lose in the future and that there isn't perhaps enough being done on those fronts on a global scale or a, a political scale. When did you did you grieve about the environment, this beautiful place that you 
had fallen in love with and learned about, did you have a moment where you, you grieved and, and you came through that or were you always headstrong that, and an optimist or something in between? What, what was your journey with your personal relationship with nature? Not just climbing trees and, and jumping into a river, but your, your personal level on an intellectual level, your personal feelings towards our earth, our nature, our habitat and everything about it. Did you have a, a light bulb moment that made you start thinking about this? Yeah, I've, I've had quite a few light bulb moments in my life that are, are very much, you know, I like to actually call them green leaf moments instead of a light bulb. Let's insert them with a green leaf. Most <laughs> of them around a sort of a nature bent. But I, I'm I'm not an overly, you know, and and people that know me and people that might listen to this get quite frustrated with me. You know, I'm a very optimistic person. Um, I don't, I haven't grieved for the natural world i've seen things that upset me yep but then i'm driven by you know achieving really great things and i'm driven by the success stories that i've seen others achieve that i've read about that i've watched on you know documentaries that i've that i've heard stories about and then you know really also been really lucky enough to be a part of through working for a great organization in tassie you know to also live in tassie you know it's a great place where a lot of my work in, in Victoria was focused on trying to restore nature, trying to, you know, we'd, we'd stuffed with it so much. It was so degraded, you know, these little bits of fragments of, of trees or bushes and, you know, they were the last things in the landscape and we were holding onto them so tightly and we didn't want to lose them. But I think coming then to Tassie, to give you an example, the last property I, I went and visited in Victoria was a heavily weed-infested block on on the Barwon River um, near Barwon Heads and covered in in box thorn which is a really invasive weed uh, full of rabbits and you know there's this landholder pumped as you know with his shovel in his hand planting his trees and I was giving him a hand and you know he was smiling full of full of energy and really excited to make a really good difference to that area fast forward moved to Tassie I went to a property in the middle of the Tarkine rainforest in a rainforest that was about 400 years old, standing there next to this wild river, the Arthur River, again next to this landhold that's like, yeah, I think I want to look after this place. What do you reckon? You know, and just going, wow, like this is this is better than some national parks I've ever been to and this person just owns this and wants to look after it. So I think for me I saw I, I think people inherently want to do the right thing. I think... You know, there's things that have occurred in society that, that have made us degrade or destroy the natural environment. But I think inherently people want to look after the natural world and they want to hand um, the natural world, world over in a better condition to the next generation. And, yeah, we're not on a really good trajectory for that, but it takes small wins, it takes small actions. And I think by collectively doing that and being really committed to it, we can achieve awesome things as a, as a sector but also as a society. Uh, and it's breaking down that divide. You know, I can't tell you the amount of times I'd visit landholders in Tassie and they'd all say, I'm no greenie, but, and I'd love the but, you know. No one wants to, they, they didn't want to say they were greenie, you know, even if they did vote greens, you know, some of them would, but they just didn't want to say they were greens. But they would say, I love my wedge-tailed eagle that, that nests in the paddock down the hill or I love the Tassie devils that nest under the, the, the bush at the front door. They see 
nature and they want to look after it and they see the joy that it brings young children and the next generation and they want it to be as it is today for the next generation. So I think for me then seeing these little things, if you can give someone something and you can, you know, have a two-way transaction and, and someone learns and we learn and we get, you know, there's give and take and you work through an issue, I think that's where the success is. And so, yeah, for me, uh, I, you know, you look at the stats, you look at species being lost and you look at the predictions and it's dire. But I think we also need to be really optimistic too because we still have the opportunity to protect incredible places. And by protecting intact ecosystems and functioning aspects of the landscape, whether they be rivers, whether they be uh, forests, by keeping them in the landscape, we're only going to do better Know, good things i've read quite a lot of of, of stuff in this space and, and re- love nature philosophers i love john muir uh, henry thoreau to go back a step you know i read i read lots of books when i was in nepal reading john krakow's into the wild of christopher mccandless that sort of you know he had very similar thoughts around national parks and just actually hang on what aren't these places for everyone and shouldn't we have access to these places and i think so much around that is just being in nature, connected to it, understanding it, and then living, you know, authentically in a way that respects the natural world. Yeah, I, I think we can still do heaps and we need to shift things and we need to be really aware of the decisions that we make. Brilliant. You've brought a little smile on my face with your optimism regarding this space and the fact that you're on the ground right in the thick of it means that, yeah, you're a... You're an expert in this field and I can read the books that I want to read and the articles that I want to read, but talking to someone that's on the ground doing it with that optimism is is quite inspiring. So thank you for that. What is a barrier to people that want to do the right thing not being able to? Is it education? Is it access to yeah the knowledge? Is it the economics of the situation? It's just too hard. There isn't the incentive to do the right thing. Why are so many people wanting to do the right thing or willing if they were given, if they knew how or given the shot, but we're still having this massive amounts of degradation and, and these problems, especially more on the mainland. But just an example I think of, and, you know, being from the city, I'm probably quite divorced from nature, as you say, and, and love getting out there. I think about someone like in the farms, I was, I did uni up in northeast Victoria as well and, and got to know farmers up in the northeast that had this amazing property they wanted to look after it yet they were extremely conservative in their views and like just not recycle because they didn't want to do it for the government why am I going to recycle for them I look after this land and it's it was such a I don't know it was so weird to see hatred for initiatives that I thought were protecting the land yet they were trying to love the land that they were living on, which they relied on as farmers. That's an example that I see. I saw, probably see the same thing up in Queensland. A lot of these places are nationals slash liberal areas, but they are also the most connected to nature in a way, a lot of the rural locations and out of the major centres. So do you have any answers for that barrier that stops people that are so connected and reliant on land yet probably abusing the land or at least not outwardly defending the land 
I think uh, I don't think there's one answer to that, and I don't think there's one silver bullet to it. I think uh, it's uh, some people say I'm becoming more like sound like a politician and leading with something with saying it depends, but you know it it, it depends on all those circumstances. It depends on you know economics is a big one. So from a farming perspective, economics is massive. So if someone a farmer needs to make a property viable, they need to put food on their family's table. They need to work that property at a level that maybe that property can't handle, but that's they're bound by that fence. They can't let their sheep over into the national park or into the neighbour's property to get a bit more feed. They have to work it that way. So, you know, I think we also have to learn a lot about then the role of government, the role of community, the role that landholders all play collectively. What's the role of regulation? What's the role of incentives? How does that? How do we look at the landscape as a whole and not judge someone on the action that they've just made there? I also think it's about, you know, we live in a very divisive culture. You know, you're either this or you're that. You know, you're either left or you're right. You're either this way or you're that way. And you're never going to win if you try to go on a values approach. If you're trying to change someone's values, you can't change someone's values. Their values are built on their experiences. So that person is doing that activity because of their value because of this experience, because their dad or their mum or their ancestor or their however taught them that and that was the way that you had to do that. So I think there's a really important role for information. I don't necessarily like the word education because as an ecologist I'm not there to educate a farmer. The farmer's going to, I'm going to provide information, the farmer's going to provide me information and we're going to try and find a common solution to that. So for instance, ecologically, I can provide someone information about what plant and what animal is is on that hill. They can tell me what time they put their sheep up there, which best suits the sheep's nutrition. I didn't. I wouldn't have a clue about that. By understanding that, I know what that pattern and what that decision point is. So I think coming from a level of respect and understanding, and not the whole seeking to understand before being understood, I think is a huge way in which we should. Or, or come together around nature. And there is a shared value of nature. Everyone values nature. They just make different decisions in the way in which they connect to nature or the way that they influence the natural world that they live in, whether they're a farmer, whether they're a forester, whether they're you know a national park manager. So everyone's coming at it from slightly different angles. So my sense, I think we should look at ways that we can all work together and where are we coming from? This might all sound a bit kumbaya, let's all hold hands and it'll all be okay. But it comes at it from a, you know, from a farmer. If their farmer farm isn't viable, they're bankrupt, they no longer have a farm, they're not a farmer anymore. So you can't say do this, you can't do that anymore, just because I think this is important now. So you need to look for different ways. And to do that, you can do that through incentives, you can do that through providing information. You know, for instance, um, we work on programs where we do a whole bunch of ecological monitoring on farms to use that information to help inform the way that a grazier would move sheep around or that, you know, this is really important for this vegetation type at this time to not have sheep in there because all the grass is about to set seed. If the sheep eat, sheep eat all the grass, the grass will die, there'll be no more grass there. The farmer will then say, I don't want any more grass there because it's important that I have grass there for, you know, those sort of very collaborative, um, collective you know, information sharing with respect as well. Where we see those things come together, there's great opportunity to, to do good things together.
that makes sense. So I've just probably talked around around in circles there. No, I loved it. And there's nuance in every good answer. So don't think that you had to provide a, a definitive opinion and standpoint. And you answered that question with, I guess, your kumbaya moment, but that's what I'm all about here. And it is that fact that we start with values before we throw down information and throw down education and throw down our own values upon others. We need to seek to understand, as you say, our values before jumping to the last, and I said this in my episode zero, jumping to the the last article we read or the last academic that, you know, inspired us. And we just throw down that and everyone else. And if we happened to come across that a year ago, we may not have even listened. So how can you expect someone with completely different experiences to listen to that first of all, and then whether it's right to listen, we need to look at the other point of view as well. So I'm not just talking about farmers either. Farmers are doing an amazing job, doing a really hard job. They're the, the breadbasket of our economy that where we, and we need them more than ever right now that imports and exports are at risk and, and all of that. Australia is so lucky and, and I think farmers know that. And it, it, eventually it is the big, big agriculture that makes the mistakes and sometimes big agriculture is necessary with our duopoly of plus Aldi. But, you know, we've got supermarket chains that are demanding low prices and, and high supply, and that's quite tough on farmers. So that they've got a lot to do without us jumping on their back, me as a city boy jumping on their back and saying, do better. While, yeah, I, sh- I should probably get some solar panels on my roof or something. But the other thing is that also with schools, there's an initiative with the Victorian government called Resource Smart Schools, and that's about looking at aspects of schools that need to be changed. So looking at energy, water, biodiversity, you know, building on the curriculum. And I've started to bring that to my school, a big school, but it's just so tough. It's just so difficult with limited funding and to say, yeah, we might save money in the long run, but right now do we have the funds to put solar panels up or put water tanks in or create native vegetation areas where we can have, you know, um, insect hotels and places where bees, native bees can actually start to pollinate and and spread and, you know, build our insect population up again and, and keep protected areas on school property. So it's in every sector that this needs to happen and it is so hard. And even with the passion that I I like to say I have, I still have to teach the class and mark the report, you know, do all of that. And this happens to be a side project that sometimes has to take a back seat, even though I'd prefer to be doing that at times. It's, I guess, the same thing for farmers that are trying to put the bread on the table or or for people in the logging industry or in the mining industry even. I'm sure that the, you know, people that go to the mining convention and spit at these executives or whatever and think they're doing something good, these people probably go home and say, I wish I could make the right decision for our shareholders and for the economy and for our company while also doing what's best for Australia and the environment and and trying to come to terms with that. The system versus the individual is a really hard nut to crack. And you mentioned bureaucracy before. Now that you're in the role that you're in, so before we actually get to this point where you're in the role, you're in the work that you're doing right now, I would love to hear a little bit about your journey through Tasmania Land Conservancy and starting out with that Skype interview and moving into actually being the CEO of this, you know, brilliant NGO. 
So, yeah, I, I worked as an ecologist for uh, three years, four years. Loved it. Best job of my life. Touring around Tassie, looking at plants, looking for animals, developing management plans, but also being a part of protecting incredible places. Yeah, almost every single day I was part of a jigsaw puzzle piece that was protecting an important place in Tasmania forever whether that be on the land of the Land Conservancy or whether that be on someone else's land. You know, it was rewarding beyond belief. Everything I did had a connection to protecting land and working with others to do that. So, you know, I, I was just buoyed with everything that I did. The more that I kept doing that, that job, I, I even my connection or my value that I put on the human element to it just grew more and more. But this was about decisions of people. This was about why is that person making the decision? How can I influence a decision, whether it be that landholder signing on a document to say he'll protect that area forever or for 10 years or for someone to donate $1,000 to help buy this patch of land and, and protect it. So everything was the human element and it was about stories and it was about connections to people and it was about connections to nature and, and listening and all those things. So... From the ecologist in me, I then jumped into a very different role and became the head of our philanthropy and community engagement program. So all of a sudden, I then had targets around making fundraising targets and being involved in development of communications and publications and the like and marketing. Um, it was a very different thing. And I'm very grateful for the people that I worked with that encouraged me to do that. You know, I, I at the time, the previous CEO said to me, said, James, there's no difference whether you're talking to a landholder about the values on that land that they might want to protect to talking to that donor that might give you, you know, a, a $20,000 check to help buy and protect this land forever. So, you know, it was all about connections it was all about stories it was all about just being really open and, and being able to build relationships with people so I jumped into that role and you know I loved it it was awesome um got to work with incredible people they taught me so much you know I wasn't a fundraiser I was an ecologist so you know all of a sudden I was working with these awesome professionals that have been doing this for years and years and years I was I was overseeing that you know I, at times I had no idea <laughs> about it but you know, we worked together collectively and, you know, I learned so much from them and the, the product that we had, which was conservation and nature conservation. And I think going back to your earlier point, uh, our, our earlier discussion around values and actually just respecting that people value nature for all sorts of different reasons, whether they value nature because it produces a product, whether that be superfly merino wool or whether that be national parks, people come together over that value of nature so how do you embrace that how do you celebrate that and and how do you foster it so that there's more people coming together and then living in a place like Tasmania which is the birthplace of conservation in Australia you know I'm, I'm never far away from that amazing photo by Peter Dombrovskis of Rock Island Bend of the Franklin River and the campaign that was the Franklin that was the birthplace of conservation in, in Australia you know that just motivated people from everywhere uh, through one photo, largely, it went, yeah, we, we need to come together and we need to break down what, whatever barriers that we've had before and we want to make sure that this place is protected. So, you know, I love that. I love bringing together campaigns. I love working with people. I had the privilege of working with incredible uh, Tasmanians that taught me so much. You know, one of my favourite campaigns that we worked on was called Daisy Dell, 
uh, which is up near Cradle Mountain, and had the privilege of working with three incredible landholders up there, one being Peter Sims and John Wilson, who are staunch conservationists and, and been in Tassie for decades and are just absolute living legends. And, and to, to work on projects with people like that gives me goosebumps just talking about it. It's it's a real privilege and pleasure to, to do that work. And, yeah, from there, um, I really love the mechanics of, of the organisation. I love the mechanics of the business element of the organisation I love the culture of the organisation. It's driven. It's got incredible supporters from all walks of life all all coming together over that value of nature. Um, And, yeah, I thought when the CEO job came up, I thought, why not? You know, had had some great people around me and really encouraged me to, to throw my hat in the ring. And I think through life you're very lucky to love what you do for a job and to work for an organisation that I didn't have to sacrifice one thing. You know, I believe deeply in every aspect of the land conservancy and, you know, the only sad thing is that one day I won't work for them, <laughs> to be honest, but it's a really special thing thing to, to work for an organisation that you believe so much in. So um, it's a real privilege to, to have this opportunity and to have this time to work with such an incredible team. Amazing, amazing journey and, and story there. What does it take to get into the CEO role, what, I mean, how did you know that you had the skills to get there? Did Was it that human connection that you had over the knowledge? Was it the leadership capabilities over the content that you, you'd built up or was it a bit of both? I don't know. You might have to ask the board that. I don't know. They made the decision. <laughs> um, what did you I go in there? Me, yeah. <laughs> for me, I had the privilege of, you know, mentors are really important for me. You know, I've learned so much. You know, I always talk about it. I've learned so much more than as much as my university was so important to me I've learned so much more through the experience that I've had and the people that I've worked with they've taught me so much more I love finance now I love accounting you know I never would have thought I loved those elements but I love seeing that by being really proficient and good at finance and good at accounting systems that you can actually achieve more for conservation so all those things together and I love the, the growth of not-for-profits. I love the growth of the non-government sector. When we look and we, we feel disheartened by governments all over the world, but you see these organisations that pop up and just do... Our organisation started, as the story goes, started in 2001 with $50 in the bank and just a couple of volunteers. And now we sit, you know, 19 years later, one of the largest landholders in Tasmania. We have a balance sheet of over $42 million. We have 22 staff and we've helped protect over 65,000 hectares of land in Tasmania just out of the sheer commitment and drive and, and dedication of people So and, and good decision-making. And, you know, I think for me having a good spread of skills, you know, I had the privilege of, of having a coffee one day with Bob Brown and, you know, I asked him about that very question and I said, how do you learn different aspects of, of that you're not very good at? And, you know, he had this great couple of words of wisdom which Bob only Bob can do and, and you know, said just surround yourself with people that are good at that thing. And Bob would then went on to then say he was a really bad public speaker and you just think, what, Bob Brown, a bad public speaker? But, you know, he, he put himself around people that were great public speakers um, and he learned from them. So I think, you know, being really 
open to learning. You know, I don't have all the answers uh, and that's the way that I, I try to, to work in my job now. I don't know lots of things. There's lots of things that I don't know and I don't know what I don't know. So, <laughs> you know, we're on this constant set, this journey of growth and learning. But, yeah, I think for me being very connected to to what the outcome that we're trying to achieve as an organisation and how we work together as, as a team to do that, whether that be a team of employees but a team of supporters and community all together, I think for me, I think that's one of the, the really critical elements about a successful organisation. For sure. And, and meeting Bob Brown, what a, what a pleasure that would have been, I'm sure. And you mentioned the Franklin River earlier. That sort of brought him out and, and started the... Australian Greens, didn't it, or the Tasmanian Greens to start with, and then it moved into a, a national party that's quite successful. Someone like him, someone like Christine Milne as well, from Tassie as well, is that right? Another activist? Yeah, we're very lucky in the Tassie community, you know. You don't have to go too far down the street in Hobart until you bump into Christine or you bump into Bob or, you know, you bump into these people of, you know, living legends of the conservation world in Tasmania. So it's, you know, it's a real... I think the other great thing I love about Tasmania is that as I started with, you know, being stuck in the world that we're stuck in now, being inside but being in a place like Tassie, nature is all around us but so is our community. You know, we're all in it together and, yeah, you don't have to, I can go down to the to the local shop and bump into a whole bunch of people that we work with. So I think that connected nature of community, nature being all around us and all those things combined together make a really a great opportunity to achieve great things. I think Tassie for a long time has been a bit forgotten. It's um, then been reinvigorated by David Walsh and the like and, you know, now it's... Uh, People, everyone wants to be here. <laughs> yeah, and that's the the amazing thing, but also the potential issue is that you start to bring the mainland over to Tasmania rather than convert mainlanders to Tasmanians. You know, that's what you want to do because it's that connection to nature and I guess the fact that these activists and people that actually started movements in Australia and in the world, I think, the Australian or the Tasmanian Greens was the first or one of the first ever green movements in the world on a political level to actually do that because of their connection, because they weren't divorced to nature, they were a part of it. And that's that's the big thing that often we forget is that some the economics matters, the local train station you're trying to build matters and the road, but what matters more is is nature and we've forgotten that a lot. We've forgotten completely about that and and I work over in the northern suburbs and growth suburbs of northern Melbourne that when I started was paddocks and trees and these amazing natural habitats and landscapes and now it's houses now it's 30,000 houses that look exactly the same with a few schools and a police station and a Bunnings and a Maccas and people say oh hooray you know we've we've done it and it's like what did we do? <laughs> you know, I, I understand people need a place to live and want to live the Australian dream and it's okay for the people in the inner suburbs that can afford it to live the Australian dream. Why can't we too? So instead of having a small shoebox apartment, yeah, we need to go out. So there are these this dichotomy of thinking and thought that is really hard to to avoid. And you talked about the human side, you talked about your purpose and, and the fact that you... And another point I loved that you mentioned was that at school when it was for the test you would never have dreamed of looking at accounting. And now that it's actually driven by your purpose and your passion, 
you're happy to do anything. You'd, uh, I'm, I'm sure you'd, you'd clean the bottom of cars and and shoes off other people if you had to, if it meant that you were going to achieve. So it's not actually what you're doing; it's what it's for that matters. So how do you interact with the system now? Do you find the system? And I know you mentioned it was difficult, or there was times as it when you're working in national parks that the system sometimes was a little bit overbearing. Do you find that that's still the case, or is it? Is the system possible to work with and actually overcome or is it something that stifles you? I think the system, you know, we're in, in society at the moment in the, the last number of years, you know, we've challenged what democracy looks like and we've seen things occur all over the world that we've seen occur for the first time with populist politics and, and the breakdown of social norms. And, you know, I think something that I've been very acutely aware of and we've been looking at as an organisation is the breakdown of institutional trust and the trust that we have as the community for different aspects of society and whether that be government or education institutions or companies or things like that. I think working with the system, we have an opportunity to achieve good things. You know, I think that there's still huge possibility of great outcomes occurring within the system. You know, the system has borne incredible things. The system has borne the protection of places. The system has borne people like Bob Hawke that protected the Franklin, you know, Theodore Roosevelt that protected incredible places in in North America. You know, the system has done good things as well as it's done things that have challenged us at, Mm. at this current time. But also looking at things like the rise of regenerative agriculture. I think that there's a growing awareness of, you know, look at the the movement of farmers for climate action. People are recognising the importance of the natural world, that the natural world plays in the economic world in which we live. I think we've been very focused on economics and growth economics and now we're looking at ways that actually you can use the market for good and we can use these systems to achieve great things. And I think the organisation that I have the privilege of working for has done that in many ways. You know, we're an apolitical organisation. Advocacy is critical to our society. It is critical to the social construct in which we live, you know, without advocacy, you see breakdown, you know, there's no challenging of ideas, there's none of that. But also by just getting on with doing what you're doing is also really important. So everyone plays a critical role in the society in which we live in the same way that everyone plays the role in in the way in which that they're managing land, whether they're managing it as a farmer, whether they're managing it as a, a national park or whether they're managing it as a water reservoir. All of those things collectively are really important to create the world in which we want to live. Again, coming back to that optimist in me, you know, I think the system can work. I think the system has great potential to work and democracy is a really incredible thing and we should we should hold strong to that. But I totally take the point that sometimes you're let down by that. But that importance of social cohesion, working together as community, as a society. But, you know, once you break down institutional trust, the only way you can break down institutional trust in the same way that you break down personal trust with people, you can only rebuild that through time. Mm. So, and we live in a world where we want instant gratification in the same way that we want all this stuff to occur right now, actually, if we want to get somewhere, we might need to do all these things slowly through time to get there. So, yeah, I, I think the system, while, you know, if you sit in my desk or you sit in where I'm sitting right now in, in this new world, you know, I constantly am frustrated by the system um, and frustrated by things, but that's also a really great thing to, to really cherish that we have because, you know, we have the lowest sense of, of corruption in our society, all those sort of things that, you know, we don't want to live in a dictatorship that's full of corruption mm. <laughs> with suppression of ideas and uh, things like that. So 
you know, I, I think the system has a has a place and, ha, you know, we can use the system for good. Absolutely. And I really do walk along this tightrope of which way do I go? Do I start to, is the, is the system at fault or not? And I think that was the perfect answer where there is so much to be thankful of that we've created these institutions and these, uh, I guess, environments of freedom and trust, but also, well, let's look right now, we'd be stuffed without a system that is so global in fighting a pandemic. If we didn't have this integrated system with experts and, you know, the United Nations and the World Health Organization working together with charities around the world as well as governments to try to stifle this pandemic, instead of having the million people that have got it with, I'm not sure on the death count right now, but, you know, 50,000 people or whatever it might be worldwide, we'd have 10 times that, 20 times that. So we do have to be thankful in that regards and we do need to make sure that we are actually empowering and, and helping the systems to become positive rather than trying to negate it. And, and that's where the conspiracy theories come in and, and that's massive at the moment. The fact that people believe that the world is flat shows what type of world we're living in right now that we do need a trust in experts and trust in the system while also being wary of it and realising that there are populist movements around the world and people that are going to take advantage of citizens listening to government and eventually rights will erode if given the chance. So it's important that we have groups there to advocate, to lobby, to, but also to have free speech that anyone's allowed to speak about anything or, you know, that, that idea. So respecting individual freedoms but also understanding that we're part of a society that needs to be cohesive is imperative to to our future and I believe that completely and and you mentioned that respect of experts it's pretty amazing that I I think of it now that people are so invested in what the scientists and medical professionals are saying right now about this because it sort of affects them but when it comes to climate action or when it comes to potentially even looking at sort of remedies or astrology or things that you know are a little bit uh non-scientific people are really willing to jump on that and say no the science is science is wrong but then when it comes to saving your life we're going to listen to the the surgeon in front of us or the pilot that's driving our plane or whatever so yeah it's just a really interesting time to live where we've got this battle of expertise that is sometimes confused as elitism and then we've got this the other side which is looking at populism and and getting in touch with your fellow man in a way but then also that being the path towards potential dictatorship or authoritarianism in the you know with a lot of the right-wing politicians that we have around the world that have started to gain power through populism and really angling towards that working class citizen that is probably not supported by that person that they've just voted in. So it's just a confusing world in that way. But I think, as you say, belief in the system and that time will fix things and time will heal wounds. And, yeah, I think that's where we need to to be focused on. It's, it's a big one, that sort of thing. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, people power movement, you know, revolutions have been built on ideas and values and things like that. But, you know, I think we live in... A state of rapid change and I think as a society we need to be comfortable with change we're in a really 
incredible moment in time where we're also seeing our natural systems change, we're seeing our economic systems change, or we're seeing our social systems change, and we're seeing it all occur in front of our eyes in one generation. So, you know, that hasn't occurred in human history in this way, in this in, in this rapid amount of change. So, you know, I think resilience and connectedness and all those things, really fundamental elements that, that all make us human. And the natural world has an incredibly important role to play in that. I'm wondering how you remain an optimist. And I know you've discussed the ways that you do and, and what you're optimistic about. But personally, a lot of the time we're I guess I find myself overwhelmed when I look outside of my circle of control, that we've got a circle of control, the things that you really can do every day. You've got the circle of influence, influence that you have upon others, and then the third circle is always changed in what it's called. But, you know, the the circle of nonsense, the circle of stuff that is external to you and and you will have no potential impact on. So in your line of work and, and in your life, have you really focused on what you can control as a way to remain optimistic, but also maybe grown that circle of what you can control at the same time to, if, if you realise that you couldn't make a difference on a certain aspect, have you given it up and said, that's not for me, I'm not going to worry about that? Or have you, are you someone that really strives and says, no, I'm going to do whatever it takes for me to be able to impact that in some way, whether it's directly or through someone I know that I can advocate my values towards i think that that scale of control and that level of influence that you have is really important and i think um it's really easy to become overwhelmed at things that you can't control and as a conservationist that's massive you know i can't as an individual control or influence policy or decisions or legislation change or huge change in that scenario that I have no personal, you know, I can vote. I have one vote in my demo- in our democracy and I can do that, but I'm not going to sit there in myself and, and get really worried and bind myself up around things that I can't control. But, you know, that's why I've made decisions in my career to go down paths of of working in in areas and working on programs and projects that I believe really strongly that I can have an influence into the the way that I want to see something occur. Um, You know, I have the, and there's lots of great organisations and great people doing things like that. So, you know, that's not just in my my professional career, that's also in, in, in the things that I do outside of that. So, you know, I think it's really important as individuals we recognize what we can control and what we can focus on and what are the things that we can do on a daily basis to influence what we want to change in the world that for me is what makes me optimistic to go back to your point you know of course there's times where you just go you know i can't control this or you're having you know mental struggles with things and that's really natural and i think it's but the world in which we live, you know, there's so many things going, the state, you know, the, the rapid amount of information that we're processing, you know, the interactions that we're having as individuals and the way that we interact as society, you know, I think all those things have combined into this quite anxious-ridden sort of world in which we live where it's full of fear, it's full of unknown and there's nothing calming or, or measured about any of that. So I think, yeah, as a conservationist, I'm really, I keep it really real. 
you know, and at times people challenge me on that and, and I like being challenged on that. But, you know, if someone's going down a path and I'm like, well, what can we do right here, right now, we're, we're looking at this project to make this decision to implement this for this outcome, we can't influence all this other stuff going on over here. And, yeah, I get it that if that all occurs, this will all be for nothing. But right now, all we can do is focus on this area and these decisions that we're making today and make sure that what we do is done to the best possible level in which we can do it. So for me, I think that's what makes me quite optimistic. I'd be lying if I wasn't saying at times I get let down by those things where things that you can't control just basically wash over something and your your level of influence is so small and so minor that the outcome that you were trying to achieve has just been overrun. But, yeah, I think, you know, we need to be really careful about uh, a real awareness of the role that we play as individuals and then what we can do to influence, you know, the change that we want to see in the world. Do you have an example of a yeah, but moment? And what I mean by that is, I don't know, the Tarkine, for example, an area that was, I guess, under threat for a little while, wasn't it? A protected area, a place that needs protection because it is so ancient and so beautiful and, and houses so much, I guess, biodiversity and life and beauty that that needs to be protected no matter what. And then someone comes along, yeah, but the logging or yeah, but the economy or yeah, but these jobs. What is your approach? And I don't want you to be, I'm not saying, I don't want to put you in an area where you're against the loggers. That's just an example. But when people come across that you work with, let's say, that say, yeah, but that's impossible or yeah, but we can't do it. What is your natural response to that? Um, The natural response to the the yeah, but, and we get it, I get it all the time, almost on a daily basis, probably weekly, to be honest. You know, I think that comes down to then a level of pragmatism and a bit of what I was talking about before. Everyone's coming at things from different perspectives. You can't force, you can't change someone's values and any act of trying to change their values is just going to create further division and chaos. So you're better off listening to those people and then finding, you know, a common thread. Sometimes there might not be a common thread. And I've had that with people. I never forget going to this one property that was an absolute cracking property. And these people were a little bit interested in knowing what, what they had there. They had this most incredible colitis, which is a native pine forest on the east coast of Tassie. And, yeah, they were interested in protecting it. But they said, oh, but they still want to get rid of the possums because there's just too many possums and, you know, who likes possums? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, that's you can't get beyond that, you know. We're not going to let you, you know, get rid of the possums. How you want to get rid of the possums that's a pretty significant point that you can't just choose which species you want to have there if you want to protect it but you know i've been able had the privilege of working on some projects that are really pragmatic in your work through solutions so you know one example of that is a, a property in the north of tasmania called the vale of belvoir which is just next door to cradle mountain and not many people know about it but it's one of the most ecologically important sites in not just Tasmania, but in Australia. And the TLC was lucky enough to purchase it off a family that ran it as a cattle grazing property for many, many, many years. And for many years, people were told, there's no way you're going to be able to buy that property. You know, they're never going to sell to a conservation group. You know, they're farmers, they're graziers. You're never going to get anywhere. Like, you know, what's the point? Give up, go and do something else. And this was before my time, but true credit to the people that were around then. And we still have that this culture, which is about working with people 
and finding compromises and finding ways through. And you know, that, that property has now been owned by the, the Land Conservancy for over 12 years and the family uh, are still incredibly connected to it. And they're still, you know, still a huge part of their family and the, their cultural connection to, to that landscape. And, you know, we still have grazing up there. It might not be the best ecologically. That, that's, there's lots of different, differing views around the ecological benefit of grazing in that landscape. But to be honest, you know, we've achieved an outcome. It might not be the 100% ecological outcome that we want to achieve right now, but we're looking for the long term. You know, where we want to go for this property in not just today, but in 100, 200 years. So, you know, I think being really pragmatic and looking to the long term gets you to get past the year but. Like get past the year but because the year but is about the right here and the right now. And while that's really important and you have to acknowledge that in the decision that you're making, when you're thinking about conservation, you need to be thinking about the long term. Yeah, I, I just think for me, finding a path, a common, a common shared value, you know, you can't change someone's values. If they value something, whether that be mining or whatever that might be, you need to recognise it and work for a solution that you can come together around it. So places like the Tarkine and, and other places all over Australia are like that. So where you have that conflict between community and, and different views, it's really challenging and it's hard to find that place. But, you know, there are examples where it has been achieved really well. Another area of passion, I'm throwing these questions at you thick and fast here, um, but relates to your work but is probably an area personally that you're invested in, which is Island Magazine. And the reason I mention this is because when we visited you recently, we got to actually go and listen to the unveiling or the release of uh, the Island Magazine, one of the editions, and, and we got to hear some amazing storytellers tell their story. And that was an edition that was really based on climate change and, and fire and the risk that especially Hobart has, but Tasmania and, and the natural habitat in general has. And, and that really stuck with me. And it was an amazing get together of the community and, and an amazingly different people from different walks of life. You had, you know, the Monopoly man in there, <laughs> you know, the, the, the monocle and the, the cane almost. And then you had the, the young sort of rebel alternative type that was telling a story about being angry as a young person. And you had these people getting together to find a common goal and to try to approach uh, conservation, but you know this idea of climate change and, and Tasmania, as well as art and the actual existence of the magazine itself and, and its survival, coming together and telling stories and listening to each other. How did you get involved in that? And is that just purely a passion project, or is it really relating to your work with the TLC? And yeah, tell us a little bit more about how you got involved in that and what it's all about. Yeah, I guess for me, again, coming back to the point around Tassie being a very connected place, you know, it's a very connected community. It's, it's um, you know, we're not that small anymore, but it's a, it's a small place and you have lots of overlapping threads in the community. And, you know, the reason that I got involved with Ireland was when I was working in our, our communications area at the Land Conservancy, we advertised with Ireland because there's strong brand connection between Ireland is a not-for-profit cultural organisation and we're a not-for-profit, you know, conservation organisation. We have a very strong brand connection and we work together on a number of different things in that way. And then when the opportunity came up to, to be involved with the magazine on the board, I sort of jumped at it because I wanted to learn a little bit more about boards. Uh, I wanted to learn a little bit more about not-for-profit models, quite different 
you know, this not-for-profit sold a magazine, produced a magazine. I was a reader of the magazine and I thought, why not get involved? For me, the magazine has a really powerful Tasmanian theme through it. It's it's a very connected magazine and it's it's got huge community buying. Um, so I saw lots of connections with the conservation sector as this cultural beast that is Island Magazine. You know, it's been around for 40 years. It's the birthplace of some of not just Tasmania but Australia's greatest writers. You know, they're first places where a number of people were published. And I love reading. You know, I'm not a very good writer but I love reading nature-based writing and um, storytelling because I think storytelling that is such a critical component to a cohesive community and to connection, whether that be to people, to culture or to place. So, yeah, I jumped into it and, and, and really, you know, I'm still involved with it and it's going through a really hard time at the moment financially. But publishing is hard too. You know, publishing a magazine, no one really buys magazines and it's it's born out of the community that, that support it. It's, it's what it's got it to its 40th year, which we're in now. But as you said, it's also this great institution that brings people from lots of different backgrounds. And I think for me, uh, that's where the goal is, you know, and, and I have the privilege of working in an organisation like the TLC that does that from a conservation perspective and Ireland does that from a cultural perspective. So I can go to Ireland events and I can be standing there next to a, another conservationist, but I can be standing there next to a marketing person, to a writer, to a poet, to a visual artist, and they're all inspired by Tasmania or they're all inspired by something special in Tasmania. So I think Tassie has this incredible cultural asset that we have here, and it's for me it's born out of a connection to nature and nature being all around us. That might not be the, necessarily the case that other people see it, but people like Richard Flanagan you know, incredible artists like Richard Wastel or, 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 you know, emerging writers like Ben Walter. You know, these guys are awesome writers. People like Pete Hay, you know, their words speak to the Tasmanian landscape and they speak to something that's, you know, really special to, to the place in which we all live. So having avenues for people to express those things, I'm not a good writer, but I can go and I, or I'm not a, I, I've never, I think I wrote a couple of acrostic poems when I was in grade three and they probably weren't very good. But, you know, I have a real powerful sense when I read a poem about the Tasmanian landscape or about particular things. I think it's about coming together and learning from each other. I've also had the privilege of spending a lot of time in the bush with creatives, whether, that, whether they're writers or whether they're visual artists. And they've taught me the art of observation as opposed to the science of observation. I was taught to make observation as a scientist. These guys were taught to make observations as artists. And, you know, the connection and the overlapping of those things are phenomenal. And we might produce a graph and they produce this thing that blows all of our minds. But that's a really important aspect of the whole picture. So how do you combine all of those things? And as I said, when you put all of those things, whether they're in one room, which you had the privilege of you know, that great experience in the Hobart Town Hall by putting them all in a room, you know, that's where the goal hits Pete Hay, who's a great Tassie writer, um, once said to me, I said, what's the, 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 the powerful thing when you connect, you know, a scientist and, a, and an artist together? And he said, James, you know, one plus one never equals two. So, you know, that great connection of people coming together from their different perspectives, you know, I think that's where the magic is really. Yeah, I, I love that idea of science and, and coming from a analytical perspective that I do at times I'm just like why don't you just listen to the science you know the graph says it the graph is there but it is storytelling that actually wins the hearts and minds 
Do you have a story that you've heard or that you've experienced that you'd like to share that really gets people inspired about nature, Tasmania, conservation? Can you think of one that you'd like to share? Oh, there's lots. It depends what type of story you Or even want, a beautiful man. moment. Is there a, a moment that made you feel more alive than ever? Is there a moment that you just felt so connected that the science went out the window, the, the job went out the window when you were just there amidst beauty that you just haven't got back maybe or that you're mm. looking for or that you or maybe being in your line of work that you're able to find quite often but just a moment that really was a what was it a tree leaf moment what was it a, a green leaf moment a green leaf moment not a light bulb moment no or a light bulb moment powered by renewable energy uh, i think for me I, I mentioned it before but the, the daisy dell campaign you know that campaign while if you look at it in one small isolation, the TLC created a 100-hectare reserve, but in doing so, we were part of something much bigger than just our, our reserve. So, you know, that was working with the three neighbours um, that were all brought together by, by Peter Sims and John Wilson and, and Gary Clark, another neighbour and, and another couple on the other side of the property that we purchased. But those neighbours reached out to us and asked us how we could help. And I, was, I had the privilege of driving up to Daisy Dell, which is a really beautiful, iconic part of Tasmania, and got to have morning tea in this incredible hand-built hut on, on Peter and John's property, which is next door to the property that's now the TLC Reserve. And, you know, they are just being in their presence. You sort of feel the importance of conservation and the effort, the sacrifices that, that they've made, you know, is something really special. But to work with them, with them on that project from that moment where at that point we were just conceiving an idea and from that idea we then developed a campaign. They got the previous owner to sell the property to us. We then launched a campaign. It was one of the most successful fundraising campaigns we ever had. We were just blown away by the amount of donations that came in. Every donation came in with a little handwritten note about a connection to that landscape or a connection to Peter and John. And, yeah, I think within a year, you know, we'd raised the, the $500,000 that we needed to secure the property and we protected it forever through that and I never forget going back up to Peter and John's place and, and sitting on their deck uh, and then they said to me, we're also going to give TLC our property. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which, you know, that they've fought, they're telling me stories of, of people shooting guns at them, you know, threatening to burn their houses down, uh, their, their hut down when they were staying there for years and years and, you know, they fought the hard fight to, to protect that landscape. They fought off clearfell logging and industrial plantations over that landscape and sort of we came in and, and, you know, did the last little hurrah but for them to then say, and we'll give you our property and then Gary next door said, and, we'll give you, and I'll give you my property as well. So all of a sudden, you know, we're thinking now instead of a 100-hectare property protected forever, we're now looking at an 800-hectare property adjoining the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area protected forever. You know, that's the stuff that gives you goosebumps. That's the stuff that, that, that drives me to do what I do. It all culminated then by, you know, having an event on that property and, and taking people around the reserve and, and hearing stories of Peter and John's and Gary's and Gary's story about his connection, you know, his late wife who, who really wanted to buy that property and protect it. And, you know, that human element that we should just cherish so much 
I think, yeah, it's a really special moment for me and, you know, it was a, a privilege to be part of that project and still be very connected to those people in that place. And, you know, and I hope more and more people will, you know, thanks thanks to people like Peter and John and everyone that donated and Gary and, and people that donated to that campaign, you know, that place will be protected not just today but forever. That's the, that's the magic right there. And to harness that magic, to go from a young man that wanted to leave the beauty of the Otways to see what was over the fence and now you found it, it's the potential to get 800, it was 800 hectares yeah. on the border of a of the national park or a you know a heritage site you know you would never have been able to do that unless you actually looked over the fence and said what what was on the other side and how can i make a difference there if i can how what can i learn and and to do that is truly remarkable and amazing so thanks for sharing that that's brilliant would you call tasmania home now Oh, mate, so it's because you're connected to my family. Everyone asks me that question. <laughs> uh, yeah, your mum asked me to ask you. It's uh... <laughs> oh, for me, you know, for me very much Tasmania is home. Yeah, when I, I come back to Tassie, you know, my, my parents' home where I grew up is still home to me as well and, and Geelong's still home. I've got family and friends there. But for me, Tassie, Tassie is a special place in my heart. It's... Um, yeah, it's a really special place and it's a place that I believe strongly that the whole world can look at and model itself on and that comes to, to having areas of intact natural areas around the places in which we live um, and you might be fearful of that from a fire perspective or the like but, you know, from a, a way of living and a lifestyle and all those things that you bring together when you have some natural elements around you, yeah, for me... Yeah, Tassie, Tassie's home for now. <laughs> what would you tell people or how do you connect with people that really don't know how to get involved with conservation or with anything environmental? What would you suggest to people first and foremost to get involved? And maybe even before that, the place to start might be to get out into nature and actually feel it and learn to love it would be the first step. But then once you've fallen in love with nature and you want to protect what we have while continuing to live in a affluent society and trying to keep those two pathways aligned and, and ensuring that there's enough nature there to support our society, but then also society supporting nature and ensuring that we realise that we rely on it. After that step's taken, what do you suggest to people? Do you, obviously, donating to the TLC would help, and and funding projects but you know on an individual level but also on a organizational level what can people do to really make a difference oh there's so much people can do that's that's the thing you know i think i struggle when people say oh what can i do to to make a difference you know people can make a difference with every decision that they make you can do things in every purchase that you make um, when you go to the supermarket the things that you choose you know all of them have impacts in the land like everything that you're consuming has come through some natural resource so being really aware of that and, and the decisions that you make and you know where does your coffee come from where is your milk coming from you know where did that wheat come from where did that rice come from all those things coming from a natural landscape and I know that's a really hard thing to, to think about at times when you're walking around just needing to fill your shopping 
trolley up and, and move through your day. But every decision that you make in your day has an influence in the land that we all live and that we all rely on for our existence. So I think those simple things, but to go back to your, to your other point around just getting out into the natural world and don't worry that, you know, I'm really privileged and lucky to live in a place like Tasmania and I can go out, you know, sitting there today watching eastern spinebills, you know, in my garden, out my kitchen window. And that was awesome. And you might, Matt, look out your window and see a blackbird and, and you know, an, an Indian miner and think, oh, that's awful. But it's still nature. Mm. You know, there's a, there was a really controversial book written a couple of years ago called The Rambunctious Garden. And it was around this concept of people just wanting this perfect natural world. You know, na- national parks were nature. But the creek down the road with a couple of red gums in it and some some magpies that are, that are still feeding and that are still calling, that's nature. So recognising that nature is all around us. Nature are the things that we eat. Nature are the places in which we recreate. All those things come back to the fundamental connection of nature. There's this incredible quote that I love by John Muir, which is when you pull at one thing in, in the world, you realise it's all connected to the universe in which we live or something like that you know so it's it's connected to everything else and and at at the core of that is the natural world so i think don't get too hung up if you live in a concrete jungle or anything like that i'm positive we live in a in a place like australia that you should just get out and whether it's looking at one tree or one bird and whether it's introduced to not even native it's still nature and you can still watch that bird feed its young and you can still watch that bird do what it does and i think that's a really critical component as well about getting connected to the natural world and not being scared of it. I think because a lot of people are diverse of the natural world, nature is scary then. So what do we do when we're scared of something or fearful of something? We just don't go there. Um, we'll kill it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right, or we'll dominate it. Yeah. But, you know, the, the other thing that I'm, I'm really passionate about is philanthropy. And when we think about philanthropy, we think about dollars. But when you go back to the definition of philanthropy is the love of life. And so, you know, philanthropy, you can do anything in philanthropy, whether that be volunteering, whether that be pulling a weed, whether that be helping someone across the road, they're all philanthropic things that you can do in your day to to give back to the world in which we all live. So, you know, I encourage people, there are some incredible benefits of social media. Get on social media, look at organisations and companies that provide opportunities for you to contribute. You know, whether it be $2, $5 or whether it be volunteering some time or just sharing a message, you just have no idea what sharing a message out there of a project that's going on in a place. When you look at the great successes of the TLC, so many of those successes are born out of a little connection or someone providing a little bit of information or sharing that content with someone else you have no idea the, the ripple effect that that can create in the world. So, you know, I think other things that people can do, to be really blunt, um, for people that are my age uh, and our age, Matt, if you don't have a will, get a will. Write a will and leave a bequest to an organisation that you feel really deeply about. We're not invincible and those little things that we don't know what's around the corner, we don't want to, you know, to, to confront death at all. But there's things that we can all do to, that, that contribute back to the society and the world that we want to create. And I think little choices, whether it be what rice you choose on the shelf tomorrow or writing a will and leaving a, a bequest to an organisation that you feel deeply about, all those things combined together are really critical things that anyone can do and they don't need to have any money to, to do that. Amazing answer. Thank you. You touched on just looking at nature and it didn't matter what it was and I was feeling a little bit 
I guess uh, I was stuck inside and, and wondering what I'm going to do with not being able to socialise in the age of COVID. <laughs> and instead of worrying about that and, and starting to get a little bit overwhelmed and anxious, even though I am loving the time, you know, it does hit you occasionally. And I just sat on a little banana lounge out in the backyard and I just stared up and looked at these bugs. And I was like, why these bugs? Initially, I was like, these bugs are just everywhere. And and then I started to focus and I started to actually become mindful and, and really connect with where I was and everything around me. And these bugs, I just started watching and I started watching individual little gnats or whatever they were. There were just hundreds of these little bugs in a cloud above me. And I just started to realize that they're just not this random bunch of bugs flying in zigzags that are just crazy with no sense that they were actually coming in and out of the cloud and moving on to other places. And, and they had a, an individual story. Each of these little bugs had an individual story. And when you become still and get caught up in the moment, that's, that's the time when you actually see nature for what it is, not this chaotic, random thing that you need to be worried about or scared of or that happens outside of you, but that each organism has a story as well. And consciousness exists everywhere. And once you realize that and connect with where things come from and caged eggs versus free range and biodynamic meat versus, you know, some factory farm stuff or whatever, you actually can live a life that isn't very different from the one you're living, but actually align your values, which I rave on about, but aligning those values that you, you hold dear and, and feeling proud about your actions that day. I think that's super important. So yeah, you touching on that made me, it reminded me of that. What do you do for yourself? Do you have a routine, exercise, meditation, spiritual, reading, writing? What do, what do you do to keep yourself sane amongst your busy life in your career and, and work? Not much time to find to fill space, to be honest, in my life at the moment. But, um, you know, I do, as a, you know, coming back to the place that I live, I'm, I'm a very active person. I love getting out and about and I ride my bike a lot. Yeah, you know, I used to ride my bike a lot more, but love getting out on my mountain bike and, and just going exploring and, and also challenging myself. I love humans are incredible, powerful things. And when you put your mind to something, you can achieve really incredible things when you, you, you put your mind to it. So, yeah, I love exploring places. I love traveling, all those things. I love contributing to things that I value. So, you know, Island Magazine is something that I do outside of my work um, that contributes to the community. I really enjoy aspects doing things like that I enjoy reading uh, I enjoy learning you know learning different things I wish I had more time to do that or bandwidth to do things like that but um you know it's that constant challenge finding that balance and that that thing I try hard at being mindful and I, I practice quite a lot of mindfulness I'm no good at it and I, I love that you know where people say you know it's very much a learned behavior and you aren't good at it you know society makes you not good at things like that so you know, I'm, I work quite a lot, a lot in that space and try as hard as I can to do things around that to, to, to sort of calm yourself because you can, things can become very overwhelming. But there's also nothing better too than getting on your bike and riding up a really steep Tassie hill to, to sort of reset and recalibrate. So, yeah, I love getting out and about. My final question is relates to the name of this podcast and it's sort of how I end every single conversation. 
Have you had a moment of clarity either through this conversation or recently that you'd like to share, something that you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, I think thinking about, and I've been doing this a lot, um, not just in this conversation, but in my life and thinking about the values that you hold and really recognising the experiences that have informed those values. And I think that's a really important thing to recognise and I think we can miss that quite a lot in our busy lives. And also, you know, you can also see people differently and, you know, if you are looking at a wor- the world or there's someone that doesn't, dis- it does- doesn't agree with you and they have different values, you can get really upset and emotional about those things. But I think remaining calm in that moment and going, really recognising that experiences are critical to those things and, you know, you can't influence or change someone's values because they are formed through a series of experiences and emotions um, through time. And for me, you know, another great thing to do too at this point in time in the world of COVID is to watch documentaries, to watch things like David Attenborough. And, you know, David Attenborough for me was really powerful as a young person exploring ideas of conservation and biology and the natural world and, like, just blew my mind. David Attenborough is, again, a generational icon for for the conservation movement. And, you know, he also, another quote that I sort of live by is that sort of no one will protect what they don't care about and no one will care about what they have never experienced. And I think giving people the opportunity and, and for yourself too to have new experiences and to experience the world and take yourself outside of comfort zones, you know, they are all really critical parts that you as a person but also us as a society need to recognise and really harness, I think, if we're going to continue to to flourish into the future. And, you know, looking back and looking at experiences and recognising it and valuing it is awesome, but also looking forward and and making really informed decisions around what you do today because they all have huge influences of the world in which we want to live in going forward. Thank you. How can people either follow you or the TLC or Ireland? Where can we find you and your work? So, yeah, go on to social media, uh, have a look for the Tasmanian Land Conservancy. It's also TLC or Tasland. So you can go on to Instagram, Twitter or Facebook and, and follow us, like us, share our information. Um, you can also find me on Twitter um, at James Haddam. But, yeah, jump on board, uh, head on to the website, have a look around, sign up to receive our newsletter, just jump on and get information, you know, learn like just seeing what's going on out there when people go, you know, how can I contribute? What can I do? You know, we're always coming up with new and innovative ways that people can connect to the natural world. Um, Half of our supporter base lives on mainland Australia. So jump on board, tell the story, you know, celebrate conservation and, and be a part of that growing community. So, yeah, Island Magazine, same, jump on social media. Reach out to us through our website if you want to subscribe or buy any magazines. You know, at this current point in time, it's in a really struggling financial position. Please buy as many back issues as you want. It's a great, great publication and full of incredible content, no matter whether it was produced two years ago, one year ago or five years ago. One of my favourite publications in Tasmania was Island Magazine from about 12 years ago that focused on nature and wilderness and it was just full of this incredible writing. So uh, express your your values and what you love in the world through the organisations that you're a part of and the organisations that you support, whether that be just purely through social media or through financial means. Jump on board. Get involved. Brilliant. Thank you, James. Cheers, mate. Pleasure.
If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you'd like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, please send an email to momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.